You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Hello again, everyone. In today's episode, we begin to address the question of Christian universalism and heresy. In modern Western Christianity, especially in the more conservative corners of it, it's not uncommon to hear that it's heretical to be a Christian universalist and it makes it seem that Christian universalism is an oxymoron. But to tag Christian universalism as a heresy is unfounded in my opinion, and I'd like to take some time to talk with you about why I believe it's not heretical to believe that God finally will save all in the end. And the best place to begin my discussion with you about this is with the fact that there were early church fathers and good numbers of early Christians who believed God was saving all in Christ. It comes as something of a shock to lots of folks nowadays to find out that Christian universalism was alive and well in the early centuries of the church, and that some of its most notable advocates were leaders in the Christian community called church fathers. The Greek word for father is pater, and the study of the early church fathers is therefore called patristics. And so the Christian universalism of the early church fathers is sometimes just called patristic universalism. That early church fathers are on record as being Christian universalists lends it credibility. Therefore, Christian universalism is not a new theology. It's an old theology, which goes all the way back to the early centuries of the church. To put it another way, Christian universalism wasn't always considered dodgy or sketchy or problematic. In the early centuries of the church, it was just part of the Christian landscape. Robin Perry, in his book, The Evangelical Universalist, gives a good concise summary of the place of Christian universalism in early Christianity. In this book, Perry describes Christian universalism as an ancient Christian theological position that in the early church stood alongside annihilation and eternal torment as a viable Christian opinion. Then Perry goes on to list the early church fathers and other notables that were associated with it, writing that, This view is perhaps most closely associated with the great biblical scholar and pastoral theologian Origen, circa 184 to circa 254. But precursors of his thought can be found in Bardasian of Edessa, 154 to 222, and Clement of Alexandria, circa 150 to circa 215. Other names of note arguably include the Agnostus, circa 210 to circa 270, Pierius, who died 309, Gregory the Wonderworker, circa 213 to circa 270, Pamphilius, died 309, Methodius of Olympius, died circa 311, Eusebius, circa 270 to circa 340, Athanasius, 296 to 373, Didymus the Blind, died circa 398, Basil of Caesarea, circa 329 to 79, Gregory of Nyssa, circa 335 to circa 395, Gregory Nazianzen, circa 329 to circa 390, Evagrius Ponticus, 345 to 399, 
Diodore of Tarsus died circa 390, Theodore of Mopsuestia, circa 350 to 428, the younger Jerome, circa 347 to 420, Rufinius, circa 340 to 410, Dionysius the Areopagite, 6th century, Maximus the Confessor, circa 580 to 662, Isaac of Nineveh, who died at 700, and John Scotus Eriugena, circa 815 to circa 877. Notice that this list of notable figures by Perry is a list of names that Perry says can arguably be said to support Christian universalism. What this means is that some of these Christian leaders clearly envisioned a universal salvation, while others of them expressed views which arguably seem to head in this direction. As I see it, a real standout on this list of notables is Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory lived from 335 to 395, and he even participated in forming the Nicene Creed in 381 AD, which set the standard for Christian orthodoxy. He also wrote against the heresy called Arianism, which denied the divinity of Christ by saying that Christ was created by the Father and not co-eternal with the Father. So what's important to notice about this is that even though Gregory believed that all human beings would be restored to God in the end, in his day, he was considered a pillar of orthodoxy and a defender of the faith. His role in defining orthodoxy and defending against heresy in the early church was so influential that just a little over 400 years after his death, he was named Father of the Fathers by the Seventh General Council of the Church, a council which took place in 787. When it came to the issue of the salvation of all, Gregory viewed God as the physician of the soul who knew how to heal sick souls in the ages to come. About God's healing abilities, Gregory wrote, For as those who scrape off calluses and warts contrary to nature, which have become attached to the body with a knife or cautery, do not apply to the one being treated a painless cure, so also whatever sort of material accretions are becoming callous on our souls, which have become fleshly through fellowship with the passions, are cut away and scraped off at the time of judgment by that indescribable wisdom and power of the one who, just as the gospel says, heals those who are sick. For it says, Those who are healthy have no need of a physician, but rather those who are sick. And so for Gregory, God was the ultimate physician of the soul who knew how to remove the sinful attachments which can accrue to souls over the course of a lifetime. But just as a doctor cannot cure sometimes without causing pain, so God must sometimes resort to a painful cure in order to free his children and to restore them to sanity. Gregory also compared God's purification of souls in the ages to come to the way that impurities are removed from gold. About this, Gregory wrote, But as for those whose weaknesses have become inveterate, which just means deep-seated or ingrained, it is absolutely necessary that they should come to be in something proper to their case, just as the furnace is the proper thing for gold alloyed with dross, in order that the vice which has been mixed up in them being melted away after long succeeding ages, their nature may be restored pure again to God. Notice that separating the dross from the gold is an analogy for separating weaknesses from souls, and that in some instances this process of separation may take ages upon ages. But that's important because God doesn't rush the process. God gives each soul the time and experiences they require in order for them to, shall we say, wake up and smell the roses. 
Not all early Christians were universalists, but enough of them were trending this direction that it was noticed by St. Augustine, 354-430, the most prominent early church father of the Latin Western Church. Augustine noted the many tender-hearted Christians of his day when he wrote about them, saying, quote, It is quite in vain, then, that some, indeed very many, yield to merely human feelings and deplore the notion of the eternal punishment of the damned and their interminable and perpetual misery. They do not believe that such things will be, not that they would go counter to divine scripture, but yielding to their own human feelings, they soften what seems harsh and give milder emphasis to statements they believe are meant more to terrify than to express the literal truth. God will not forget, they say, to show mercy, nor in his anger will he shut up his mercy. This quote from Augustine about these mercy-oriented Christians of his day comes from a Christian handbook he wrote called Enchiridion on Faith, Hope, and Love. And in this handbook, Augustine takes a hard line on the everlasting punishments of hell. So while Augustine did not agree with these soft-hearted Christians of his day, neither did Augustine doubt their identity as Christians and neither did he accuse them of going counter to divine scripture. Thomas Talbot, in his book, The Inescapable Love of God, gives attention to the significance of Augustine's recognition of the considerable presence of universalist-minded Christians in his day. According to Talbot, we can tell by reading Augustine that, quote, the idea of universal reconciliation was very much a live option within the early church, for it was not merely some, but very many, who opposed the idea of eternal punishment. And these very many were not pagans, but Christians, those with no desire to go counter to divine scripture. David Bentley Hart also notes that Basil of Caesarea once made a similar observation as Augustine's. In Hart's book, That All Shall Be Saved, Hart writes this about Basil. The great 4th century church father Basil of Caesarea once observed that, in his time, a large majority of his fellow Christians at least in the Greek-speaking Eastern Christian world that he knew, believed that hell was not everlasting and that all, in the end, would attain salvation. For those of you who are interested in the place of universal salvation in the early centuries of the church and want to know more, I am happy to recommend to you a recent wonderful resource on this topic. Just published in 2019, it is entitled, A Larger Hope? Universal Salvation from Christian Beginnings to Julian of Norwich by Ilaria Ramelli. Dr. Ramelli is a leading expert on the early church fathers and has done extensive research on the place of the doctrine of universal salvation in the early church. In the introduction to her book, A Larger Hope, Ramelli writes, Origin of Alexandria, died circa 255, the greatest Christian philosopher, theologian, and exegete of the patristic era, is regarded as the founder of the doctrine of universal salvation. He embedded it in his theory of apocatastasis, or restoration of all rational creatures to the good, that is, to God. However, as I will show, he had important antecedents, such as Bardasian of Edessa and Clement of Alexandria, as well as some apocryphal writings, and especially the Bible, of which Origen was the utmost Christian exegete. Origen himself declares that there was a tradition behind him when he refers to apocatastasis or to the universal restoration. Origen wrote, quote, The end is the so-called apocatastasis, because then no enemy will remain. 
if it is the case that Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, but the last enemy will be destroyed, death. But then Romelli makes this observation about the way Origen referred to apocatastasis as the so-called apocatastasis. She writes, The words, the so-called apocatastasis, indicate that Origen is referring to an already existent tradition. And this was not a tradition that only possessed the concept of universal salvation, but not the word apocatastasis, but rather texts that contained both the concept and the very term apocatastasis, and also a biblical passage, Acts 3.21. What Dr. Romelli is saying here is that the doctrine of apocatastasis, or the doctrine of the restoration of all things, was something that was already well-known as a kind of theological tradition by the time of Origen, and Origen died in 255 A.D. And then Romelli goes on in the rest of her excellent book to describe how the doctrine of universal salvation was supported by a number of patristic figures in the early centuries of the Church. And there's something else that points to the widespread belief of universal salvation in the early centuries of the Church, and that's how of the six teaching centers of early Christianity in the ancient world, Four of them supported universal salvation, one supported annihilation, and the other supported eternal torment. So at least where Christianity was being taught in an organized way in the ancient world, surprisingly, it seems that Christian universalism was in the lead. However, the school of Christianity that supported the eternal torment idea was the one that ended up influencing Western civilization and Western Christianity. And the theologian at the center of the eternal torment school was Augustine. George Sarris does a very good job of describing all of this in his book on Christian universalism entitled Heaven's Doors, Wider Than You Ever Believed. In his book, Sarris describes the way he discovered all of these things, writing, One of the most unexpected discoveries for me as I began reading the history of what Christians have believed about hell was that endless punishment was not the prevailing teaching during the first five centuries after Christ. This was a critical time in the history of the church. It was closest to the apostles. Its influence and impact on the surrounding culture was greater and more effective than at any other time, and its growth was unmatched. And yet, during this time, the doctrine of endless punishment wasn't even a central theme of its message. Of the six major centers of Christianity in the ancient church, two, Alexandria and Caesarea, favored the doctrine of ultimate restoration on the principles of probably the most important theologian and biblical scholar of the early Greek church, a man named Origen. Two, Antioch and eastern Syria favored ultimate restoration on the principles of Theodore of Mopsuestia, and one, Asia Minor, following Irenaeus, held to the annihilation of the wicked. And only one, northern Africa, following Tertullian and Augustine, strongly favored the doctrine of future endless punishment. The surprising discovery George Sarris made in his research about the doctrine of eternal torment was that this doctrine was not the majority view in the major teaching centers of early Christianity. And so it is the case that even though the doctrine of a hell of endless torment was not dominant in the early church, it eventually became dominant in Roman Christianity under the influence of Augustine and Tertullian. And then in the 6th century, there was a Roman emperor named Justinian who tried to force out of the Roman church anyone who didn't go along with Augustine's teaching about the eternal torments of hell. Justinian's strategy was to attempt to condemn the early church father Origen, 
who had been an advocate of universal salvation. Justinian didn't succeed in condemning Origen as much as he wanted to, but he did end up doing significant damage to Origen's reputation, and he also did significant damage to the Christian hope that God would finally save all human beings in the end. And so on the next podcast episode, we will look into how it was that Christian universalism went from being a reputable opinion in the early centuries of the church to being associated with heresy in the medieval Latin Roman church of the Middle Ages. But for now, the main thing I wanted to leave you with is just the observation that Christian universalism was well-known and well-respected in the early centuries of the church. Finding this out gave me confidence that Christian universalism is not just a new theology advocated by modern, pluralistically-minded Christians. No, Christian universalism is an old theology which is deeply Christian and which was advocated by numerous early church leaders and considerable numbers of early Christians. Knowing about the early history of Christian universalism in the church is one of the reasons I feel confident that it is quite possible to be a Christian universalist today and to believe that grace saves all. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.